This podcast is supported by MatthewHenry.org, the new devotional website based on Matthew Henry's A Method for Prayer. Listen for more at the end of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm one of the usual hosts, Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania, here with my usual uh, co-host, Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, a congregation in the Presbyterian Church in America in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Todd, I think that's the third time I've introduced you faultless. And you've gotten it right. After, after <laughs> what, seven years I, of you being there? Seven years, you finally, finally, mm-hmm. finally nailed it. Exactly. Finally nailed it. I even recognize you. you know, well, right. If I were to see you on the other side of the road, I would, mm-hmm. there's Todd. Well, I, I recognize And we seem to both be balding at relatively the same rate yeah, yeah. now. So well, that's kind of helpful. You're on a number two on the clip. I'm, I'm, on I'm a, already on a number one. That's I, true. I am kind of the shape of the future yeah, for you. Yeah, that is true. One of the, <laughs> These are uh, important things. People. One of the great things about doing this podcast is we get opportunities to reconnect with old friends. And that's what I'm going to do today because we have a woman on the show. Uh, her name is Adeline Allen. She is Associate Professor of Law at Trinity Law School in California. We want to talk to Adeline today about surrogacy, the various moral, legal issues, etc., that, that Christians and pastors need to bear in mind when they're uh, addressing these issues in a personal or pastoral context. So great to have you with us, Adeline. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Um, before we dip into the uh, the deep stuff, I just want to say that Adeline and I were both together on the James Madison program at Princeton University, the great program headed up by Robbie George, uh, Brad Wilson, and, and Matt Frank. Two years ago, we both had fellowships there. And while we were there, we were good friends with John Wilsey. And I like to think of the three of us, John, myself, and Adeline, as kind of the Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Shirley MacLaine of the Madison program. Adeline, I want to start by asking you, between myself and John Wilsey, who do you think was the smartest dressed guy? Oh, my goodness. Clearly you. Oh, good answer. Good answer. Wilsey. John, I hope you're not listening to this. <laughs> if you're out there, Wilsey, eat my shorts. Eat my shorts. Excellent answer. Excellent answer. I like. Well, and, and what makes this day now so special is that for the first time. Do you know she didn't even take a breath? For the, for the, for the very first time, Carl was uh, uh, recognized as a sharp dresser. And so that's, that's monumental just on its own. So uh, Adeline thinks he's going to be impossible to be around now for the last <laughs> well, few hours. Adeline's not an American. She's from Indonesia. And, you know, for Americans, the bar is set so low for sharp true. dressing. It doesn't mean anything when an American <laughs> recognizes yeah, sharp dressing. That is true. When an Indonesian does. That's, that's, <laughs> that's very sophisticated, that's very international of so, you, Carl. Yeah. This isn't my topic, uh, or, or our topic today, but I'm actually of Chinese ethnicity. And oh. yeah, my family uh, was Indonesia. I was born and raised there. And we look Chinese. We don't look like the native Indonesians. And in Indonesia is 
the uh, world's most populous Muslim majority yeah. country. Who would have exactly. thought? Yeah. And yeah. so we were persecuted oh, and sure. for being Chinese and for being Christians. Goodness. And I've, uh, I went to the United States really fleeing coming here wow. when I was 16 and got political asylum. But anyway, wow. thanks for mm, letting me throw that out there. <laughs> there's, there's probably a lot of stories there. Yeah, yeah that's well, thanks for sharing that. Um, so Adeline, I, I serve as a pastor. Carl uh, served as a pastor for a time as well. And I, I've been asked quite a few times over the years by couples who are not able to conceive. And so therefore they're looking into different options. I've been asked about the morality and the ethics of surrogacy. I've been asked about uh, the morality and ethics of in vitro fertilization and, and other things like that. And oftentimes some of those issues are tough for pastors to grapple with just because we haven't looked into all of the, the medical ethics of, of the issues. I, I would imagine that a lot of uh, pastors might not realize um, some of the questions that in vitro fertilization um, raises. I have heard from pastors who have encouraged uh, couples who could not conceive to to consider using a a a, a surrogate. Um, and so, uh, imagine you're me for a moment, and somebody comes up to you wanting kind of a good, concise, few words of guidance, and somebody asks you. Listen, um, you know, we, we have not been able to conceive. This has broken our hearts. We, we really, really want children. And we have met someone who is willing to be a surrogate for us. Um, what are the first things that are going to come out of your <laughs> mouth uh, to, to, to this person? What are, what are the first questions that you're going to raise that you want them to consider? The first first thing. I'm going to say it's probably what I would imagine a lot of pastors are going to say. And then the second or third are probably going to be pretty different depending on where people are. But the first thing I think is it really important that they hear, I am so sorry. This is really hard. Yeah. I cannot imagine, especially if I'm the pastor, if I haven't experienced infertility like mm-hmm. that. Right. This is um, likely it's been years and yes. lots of losses one way or another. Mm-hmm. So they need to hear that. And they need to hear your heart. And I think a lot of pastors are there. Uh, Secondly, (laughs) the temptation, I think, for us, especially Protestants, is to open our Bibles to the verse that says, thou shalt not hire a surrogate. Oh, wait, there isn't one. Mm -hmm. But we still want to think biblically. We want to orient ourselves Mm -hmm. to who the Lord is and who we are as made in the image of God. And the other thing, I think it's important for us to remember that what these couples want is a very good end. Right. Right. Be fruitful and multiply. They want children. They want babies. The Lord loves children. The Lord loves babies. So I think, I think we all agree. It's part and parcel of why we can sit down and mourn and weep and grief with them that yes. they are not having babies. This is a really good thing. Question I think is whether. So the end's good, but whether the means mm-hmm. are worthy or whether the means are good. And can they be justified toward that very good end? And um, after doing a lot of research, and I was evangelical, I didn't have a position on this. I used to teach surrogacy cases, teaching it both ways, just to um, needle my students into thinking this side and that side and every side. But now, after doing a lot of research, I don't think we should be doing it as society Uh, in our culture, I don't think especially Christians should be doing it. I don't think this is 
appropriate to who we are as image bearers Mm -hmm. it's not appropriate to our nature there's a lot of gnostic tendencies in the practice in the whole culture of ivf and surrogacy that we are ghosts in the machine we're not not our bodies and we can hire for example a woman and call her a surrogate or just the carrier really in a lot of surrogacy contracts she'll be called the carrier while in fact um this should not be torn asunder. The biological mother and the gestational mother should be one and the same. Mm. In fact, the gestational mother is the biological mother. I think most people are thinking really the genetic mother and the yeah. yeah, and the gestational carrier or the carrier. So so kind of the the, the, the first uh, kind of ethical or moral and, and we would draw a line to biblical dilemmas here that we would want someone to wrestle through would be first of all, and I, and I like your your identification of this as almost a kind of a, 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 a gnosticism, so that we can expect a mother to to gestate a baby, um, but but be nothing more than a carrier, um, right? That, that that so minimizes the significance of that act of carrying. What are we expecting really of that mother? What are we expecting of her? in terms of what is going on in her body and in her heart um, uh, as she carries that, that, that baby. That's a, that, that's a genuine dilemma that someone who thinks about humanity in biblical terms and the image of God, uh, we, we, we can't really dismiss that. Right. So I, and I think that's a, it's a, good, it's a good starting point, right? Who we are as image bearers. I think if, if uh and sometimes saying saying in a different way, but in a different, really important aspect is uh, the Lord tells us to second greatest commandment to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Mm-hmm. If we're to love our neighbors, what does it look like in loving that woman who's apparently right said yeah. that hey, I'm I'm happy, I'm willing, I'm able to gestate to bear your child for you. And by the way, generally for money, very few women are going to sh- uh, show up and do it for purely altruistic reasons. Right. And therein lies a whole, it's a Pandora box. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got to remember that the end goal here is to produce a child. Mm-hmm. And I I don't think I can call that procreation. And in many other uh, worthier minds than mine, people I like to cite and read, they, they think this is really manufacturing of children, not procreating yeah. anymore. Yeah. What does that do to the child? It, it, and like you said, this so injures who the woman is. Mm-hmm. This degrades her. This dehumanizes her. Yeah. What does that do to the child? Um, I've mentioned this to several people who've talked to me about surrogacy, but part of the reason that I got curious and started reading on surrogacy after teaching the surrogacy cases for years and not having any position really, and I've been a lifelong believer, mm-hmm. um, is I had my own baby. And I remember I'm here in California and people here can be, shall we say, crunchy. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a home birth and all that. And I had midwives and all that. And my midwives were very good midwives. They were very keen on helping the baby flourish and thrive mm-hmm. and helping me thrive too. But one of the, one of the ways that was really important um, for the baby to thrive is to do bonding. The baby's born, put the baby on the mother's chest. Yeah. It's re- it, it regulates the baby's body temperature, yeah. sugar level, all kinds of things that you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. I, sh- I certainly didn't. 
it's really important um, for the baby to thrive that the mother nurses the baby. They told me, they taught me how to nurse the baby. And I thought, I, I had no idea. We grew up with a small family. It's just me and my sister. I was not familiar with babies here. Mm. And then I thought a few months into it, if there's this much into I'm the mother and this is the baby and this is what I need to be doing around and with my baby all the time. And really at this point, it matters less that I'm the baby's genetic mother. It's important because I have been with the baby for the last nine and a half months. It's my smell and it's my breast milk tailored to that baby as opposed to if I had a neighbor's baby that I'm helping by nursing. It's actually tailored to my baby and what the baby needs. And I thought, this isn't a neutral issue. The world is either misguided if we say, yeah, yoo-hoo, surrogacy, it doesn't matter. We're all just goes in the machine mm-hmm. or it's an insidious lie hmm. yeah. to what extent uh, is what you're saying uh, adeline would it apply to say test tube babies for a couple who can't conceive naturally but a baby could be conceived for them in a test tube and then implanted into the the mother's womb would you see issues with that in quite the same way because then you know the mother is is nurturing the, the child in the womb and, and bringing the child to term. I'm assuming that would be a different case. If so, how, how would you parse the two cases there? Right. And this is likely to be a source of disagreement among Christians. I think faithful Catholics are going to say one thing and then some Protestants are going to agree with that, and you can in- include me in there, by the way, all cards on the table, and then other Protestants on the other side. But I think we can come up with the quote-unquote best-case scenario, if you're going to do IVF, right? Quote-unquote best-case scenario is going to be, you take this married Christian couple, you take his sperm, you take her egg, you put that, and they can't conceive, or they can't carry it to term. So, um, we take sperm and the egg and then um, put it in a glass literally in vitro fertilization and implant that back in the mother's womb so like you said carl she gestates a baby she gives birth to the baby she can bond with the baby and all of that and yet we still went through the ivf route again for a very worthy goal of this child whom they're going to love and i I can say that by the way the loving part about other couples doing all kinds of things like surrogacy okay but we're still circumventing the natural procreation within marriage and do we have anything to say with regard to who we are as made in the image of god Mm -hmm. is it really important that we go through the whole process within that union within the marriage union a Catholic catechism says, yes, it's really important that we keep it within the union. If that's a turnoff for a lot of reform people or a lot of evangelicals or Protestants, I like to go and take a look at, for example, Oliver O'Donovan, um, who's an Anglican theologian and professor. I see theologian. I, I have to look that up. And he says it's part and parcel, the limitation of procreation is part of who we are as humans. And he takes us out of the Nicene Creed. Are we begotten or made? And that's actually Hmm. the title of his book, begotten or made, question mark, Hmm. right? Uh, If we are made in his image and and Christ is uh, begotten of the Father. One thing, doing it one way, through the union of the uh, mother and father and their sexual union uh, produces the shell. That's procreation, that's begottenness. The other one is uh, manufacturing. Mm. 
Other thinkers have said, if you're going to manufacture a child, and Leon Cass, by the way, who's uh, not Catholic, manufacture, really, you can think of literally manufactured, handmade, you're, hand, you're making this child, then what does that do to that, the status of that child? Other thinkers, John Finnis is a Catholic, is a Catholic convert from, I think he was an atheist. Uh, he said then, the status of the child is radically different. If you're begotten, you are the same status as your parents. If you're made, you're an inferior status. Back to Oliver O'Donnell, he said, things that we make are not of the same status as we are. But they, uh, the people that we beget, they are the same status that we are. And these are very hard words. John Finnis uh, moves on to say, if the child that we make out of, say, IVF is not the same status as we are, that is, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that is dangerously, uncomfortably getting close to something like slavery. Mm. Now, again, I think a lot of people hear this and say, but that can't be. I mean, I love the child or children that we procured through IVF. I have no doubt. And people who uh, have been writing about this, who are saying that we should not be going that route, have no doubt also. We're talking about something different, right? You're going to love that child. Yes, yes, yes. But should we be doing that to that child, even in the best case scenario? Mm. Again, this is contentious. If I, uh, I've spoken about this at different venues, I think especially the Christian young people who are hearing this, the IVF thing is really hard to swallow. I think people will take it uh, very personally a lot of times. Yes. And I hope I'm not saying it uh, in an unkind manner. I hope I'm saying this no. uh, in kindly and with grace. Mm -hmm. I wonder if where we are as evangelicals and Protestants now in 2020 is where a lot of us were in the mid-70s about abortion. Hmm. I think a lot of the, uh, then our Catholic brothers and sisters were saying, of course you don't abort. This is right. one of us. This is a human child, just little. An embryonic, I think Robbie George, speaking of Robbie George uh, at Princeton, I think he said an embryo is an embryonic human being. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of us in the 70s said, well, show me the Bible first that says you shall not abort. Right. But um, I think it's, it requires the same orientation toward what the Bible reveals about who we are mm -hmm. to be thinking through these these matters. Yeah. And and I think one of the things that's so important about this discussion is that my impression of, of every person who's ever asked me directly about um, the ethics of, of IVF, for instance, really, really did want to know um, uh, that they, they really were looking for, for guidance there. And mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think that it's incumbent um, to give good moral categories um, for folks to, to, to wrestle with, over this, if, if the only thing we do is empathize to the point that we help them not to wrestle through the ethical issues, then we haven't served them well. And going back to what you said originally, I, I want to emphasize the importance of, yes, if, if we, we, we want to add our empathy, anyone struggling or anybody who, who has or, or, or who has friends that have struggled with fertility knows that it's heartbreaking and and that deserves Christian empathy, um, mm -hmm. to, w w with without a doubt. Um, but to deny then that there are any important ethical 
problems um, with, with, with IVF um, is to not serve them well either. And so we do, you know, again, my impression has always been with the people who've come to ask me, they are wrestling with it and they want to know if, 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 if this is something that they need to not consider. And if we withhold, you know, any kind of help from them to help them wrestle through that well, then we're not serving them. Um, and so, and so we've, we've, we've got to raise these questions. We've got to raise these issues graciously for sure, but we've got to raise them. Do you think, Adeline, that the, the church should emphasize adoption more? Yeah. I mean, clearly, uh, if the, the logic of your position would be very much that, well, IVF uh, and surrogacy, certainly in IVF, uh, are not options. Do you think then there's, there's a, a place for the church to be teaching much more actively about adoption? And of course, adoption is a Christian doctrine. We're all adopted. Mm-hmm. So it's a great model. Do you think there's a place for that to be emphasized in the church that perhaps it is not not been emphasized it should i know russell moore at uh, the southern mm-hmm. baptist russell moore who i think has adopted children himself yes, i yes. think yes, uh, yes has made that something of a distinctive as his own ministry do, do you think there's more place for that that we neglect that somewhat absolutely i and, and, I, and I know a lot of churches that have done a really good job um emphasizing that and calling people's attention to that modeling that if uh, members of the church have adopted foster adopted and those are nothing less than heroes. I thought you were going to ask me a much more difficult question, Carl, of embryo adoption. Oh, let's do it. I em- think that's <laughs> em- embryo. Do- uh, that was going to be my next question. That's a great question. And yeah. that is one, you know, it's amazing what, what technology does. I, I have been asked about that recently. So, yeah, I'd love to hear your, yeah. your thoughts on, on the adoption of embryos. That is a 21st century Boy, isn't it? problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, my mother-in-law in Oregon was just talking to a lady. I wasn't, I'm not sure where this lady was. Somebody at church, perhaps, or somebody she knew from a children's group that she was involved with. But she had um, her child through embryo adoption, and she's thinking of doing more. And then my my mother-in-law said, hey, I had this conversation. Uh, what Adeline, do you think? Actually, so, actually Adeline, yeah. it might be useful, in, just in case somebody out there doesn't know what embryo adoption is, could you... Could you tell us exactly what that is? But, yes. Uh, uh, my, my, our quote unquote best case scenario earlier about IVF, the married Christian couple, right? It's her uh, egg, his sperm. Generally, the, because the process is so arduous and expensive, the doctors and scientists aren't just going to take and make one embryo. It's generally going to be several. So Christians here, here's another question. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, the, shall we say, system? Is this systemic? Another loaded word these days. They're going to choose the strongest, best embryos. The rest of them, they're going to ask you, Christian parents, what do you want to do with the rest of the embryos? You can keep your, and and we're pro-life people, let's not kid ourselves. We can keep your frozen babies frozen. You have to pay for it. Keep them frozen to keep them alive. Or you can choose the best and strongest one to be implanted. Or you can quote, donate the rest for research. And let's not kid ourselves. Your kids are going to be killed, right? right. They're going to be destroyed. You're gonna, they're going to be killed. So I know some some couples, some Christian couples, they're committed to not having any of their embryos destroyed or killed. So they try to implant every single one. And I know some Christian couples who are up to six, seven, eight children. Mm. And I'm not entirely sure they were actually open to life in that particular sense, right. or they just can't countenance the idea of their children being 
their frozen babies right. being right. Uh, destroyed. So anyway, so there is that. All right. So now um, embryo adoption. We've got couples, Christians or non-Christians, or sometimes singles. Couples, by the way, straight, gay, uh, lesbian, any color there. And uh, you've got leftover embryos, just part and parcel of how the system works. What do you do with them? So, a lot of Christian couples, and I think there may even be some agencies, try to match these infertile Christian couples with uh, some embryos. And the embryo will be implanted in the wife's womb. And they adopt, literally adopt the embryos. Mm -hmm. It's like what Russell Moore did with the two boys in uh, from the Russian orphanage, mm -hmm. but with embryos. Right. And, and, and that mother then becomes the, the gestational mother of those children with all of the, yes. the, the important nurturing, both, both emotional and biological nurturing that are going on during during those times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and is, mm -hmm. yeah. Is, is that not a good, I mean, the strange thing here is we have these embers going to die. These right. babies are going to die. We're just kept frozen. So yeah. is this, help me, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, that's the, what do you think, Adeline? Are you able to yeah. make Yeah, oh boy, I do not have a good answer here. I think uh, people I truly admire and respect in the field, people of faith, of our faith, reasonably disagree, and I don't have a good answer. Yeah, Clearly, a shot at life here, right? And by the way, the, the failure rate is very high yeah. for um, IVF. Yeah. Even with all our advances, it's and especially with age, I, I should say the, su the success rate is very low, <laughs> mm -hmm. low to very low. Okay, uh, so a shot at life for these little tiny babies, certainly better than not. Um, some, but but when we realize that these uh, mothers and fathers are not the babies and children's genetic parents. Yeah. That comes with its host of implications. I'm actually working on a scholarly research on what I think is a related matter on donor conception. Mm -hmm. You've got a donor sperm, donor egg, and by the way, normally not donors, they're paid. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, that, that has its own host of problems. While these kids are being loved, right? They are loved every day of their lives. These, these parents are called to adoption. So they love their children well and heroically. So there's that. Um, there's also, I think, the thornier issue. Oh, by the way, somebody I respect very much, Jennifer Law um, and Gil Mylander, I think, I think both of them have said, and I'm not sure how, I wasn't at the talk, I read about this. I, I wasn't sure what the question was or how they came up with this, but I think there's been a suggestion, perhaps if those embryos are not going to be adopted, cannot be implanted, it's time to to bury them. Yeah. We're going to thaw them out and give them a proper burial. Yeah. Grieve, mourn. This is uh, your other children's sibling and siblings, and these are your children. Yeah. But um, aside from that, if, if Christian couples, for example, want to adopt these embryos, like Carl says, is that not a good thing? Mm -hmm. And I think a shot of life is uh, definitely better than permanently or indefinitely being frozen or yeah. dead. But then how do we not encourage this market to grow right now right. there's an est estimated a million frozen embryos in the united states alone and that figure i think is a little bit older so a million mm -hmm. plus mm -hmm. what's the way out of this right because if as soon we, as we as soon as we make it financially viable uh, th then it's going to grow if we if we if, right. if there's if it's going to make someone a profit then it's going to grow exactly and by the way it's a huge it's a huge industry yes uh 
the fertility industry, I think this is old number from 2017 or so, is something like a $15 billion mm. industry. Mm. Surrogacy alone is six, a six billion uh, or was a $6 billion industry, globally $4 billion in the United States. And that was, again, 2017 Goodness. or so. So exactly. How do we how do we do that? How do, how do we encourage adoption without creating more of a market? And there already is a fertility market of fueling this. And I think a lot can be perhaps borrowed from the existing adoption market but and even there we know that there's people making money selling babies yeah. right there's parents did not really want to part with these babies parents from especially poor parents abroad but yeah yeah well these are <laughs> these are such thick questions and again the uh you know technology has has forced upon us now the the um the difficult job of navigating these these issues in an ethical way uh which is very challenging our our guest today has been Adeline Allen of Trinity Law School in California and she is doing um work to help as a person of Christian faith she's She's doing work to help us think through these things well, and we want to continue to do that. Um, Adeline, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, it's a it's a discussion I need another hour uh, with uh, with with you on uh, to think through some of these things. But I I hope that if nothing else, what we've done for for our listeners is to provide them with certain categories uh, to help them navigate some of these things. Cause as, as you mentioned early on in our discussion, these are, these are deeply felt, deeply emotional type of, of very human issues that, that deal with the, the deepest parts of our heart. And, um, and we want to, we want to walk through them well. So Adeline, thanks for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Carl, for having me. It's a pleasure. Mm-hmm. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you get a chance, run over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and uh, we uh, provide you with various uh, resources that we believe are helpful. And uh, uh, this is a, a listener-supported uh, podcast. If you would like to uh, to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can certainly do that if you head over to our website. Uh, but again, thank you so much for joining us, uh, everyone, today. And, and once again, a, a a, a, a word of thanks to our to our guest today, Adeline Allen. We will look forward to uh, speaking to you all uh, next time. Sweet Adeline, apple of my eye. Sweet Adeline, oh, won't you be mine? Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. And now for something completely different. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals invites you to visit our latest devotional website, Matthew Henry's A Method for Prayer. Find it online at matthewhenry.org. Written nearly 300 years ago and edited by Ligon Duncan in 1994, 
Matthew Henry's A Method for Prayer will train Christians in the use of biblical truth and language in both public and private prayer. Sign up for the daily email at matthewhenry.org.